The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. We continue the conversation on the talking point and you've just heard uh, the story of Mbindu Lonzoia and it's really a picture of the kind of difficulties and challenges that some learners have to go through. It's the hurdles they have to overcome in pursuit of their dreams. And the fact that he was able to do that, think about how long we were under lockdown for no access to any form of online learning, relying on his textbooks to get him through the year. And, you know, it's just part of the reason why we have to celebrate these young people that have done the absolute most to get to where they are. Professor Elizabeth Henning is the the South African Research Chair, Integrated Studies of Learning Language, Mathematics and Science in in the Primary School Faculty of Education at the University of Johannesburg. Professor Henning, good morning to you and thanks for your time today. Good morning, uh, SAFM. I certainly don't want to take it for granted when I heard Mbendula's story that He's not the only learner that would have had to effectively make ensure that he's in charge and he's responsible for whatever it is he learns during the lockdown period of, of, of that, that we saw when they were in grade 11 and in grade 12. I have to say to you, Kathy, that um, this is a, 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 almost a perfect example of self-directed learning and self-regulation. So um, in in, um, psychology of learning, we talk about executive functions. Mm -hmm. That's the immediate action in one's brain in the prefrontal cortex, so to speak, when you have to make decisions about what you're doing, what you're reading, when to stop, when not to focus. And being locked down in so many ways, only with textbooks, the, the self-motivation that comes from that mm. is, is probably more advantageous than traveling up and down to school. Now, this might sound a bit crazy, but because he is invested in sorting out things from the texts that he has and the knowledge he has built in the previous grades. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely remarkable. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there, the self-motivation that it, it requires to be able to be in that position, that you, you have to know what your why is. And, 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 and certainly I think we'll see that from, from a lot of the matric learners who've, who've been able to, to, to make it because we know that in the public sector, the access to resources is just limited. I was looking at the number of learners who are on social grants who sat for this exam. Professor Henning, that number is 626,539. What does that tell us about the state of education and learning in this country? Well, uh, I I can't make general big statements Mm. about a system uh, uh, in a very... uh, a very complex country like ours. But I must say to you that if children, and that's always been my stance, and I say it over and over on these interviews, I, I'm an advocate for it, that in the early years, 
in the foundation phase, grades one, two, three, four, or five, maybe even, when they lay the foundations there for young kids to read well, to learn how to analyze any text, whether it's electronic or print or just audio, if they learn those skills early on, they keep them for life. Um, I don't think one learns to read well by the age of 15 or 16. Mm. Uh, You have to have a foundation. There's, in fact, a a type of threshold that if you haven't learned to read well, the chances are you will need remedial assistance and learning support to help you to understand these texts. And when I heard this young man who's going to become a doctor, uh, when I heard him speak, I could just hear in his discourse it wasn't, there weren't cliches. He was seriously talking about how he engaged with the knowledge in these books and how he organized it. Uh, on a footnote to that, you know, when teachers, they mean it very well, but schools, all schools in our country, I think, do something like this. They train the tricks to write exams. So mm. there's a lot of exam writing training. Mm. And in the end, those procedural skills become the object of those classes. And so kids travel to school. It takes a long time. They get to school. Eventually, they sit down or go to a lab. And they spend a little bit of time on the tasks that they're doing. But the rest is taken up with lots of other things. And I think these conversations at school are very important. But in the absence of such conversations, when you're alone at home and if it's fresh air, you go and sit outside with your books or you just have to deal with yourself, there's something about that which I, I must say I find it extremely appealing and attractive that someone can do that. And let me tell you, human beings can do that. I think we are overemphasizing resources and programs to the extent that we forget the drive, the personal motivation, mm-hmm. the interest, the interest to do things without people around you telling you how. You know why, why I'm impressed with people who work from their textbooks all on their own is specifically that they saw things there on their textbooks in two-dimensional pictures and in language. Mm. And so they had to imagine three-dimensional and movement and so much else. And that imagination is one of the strongest parts of creative, intense learning. They used their imagination to make sense of the text that they were studying. I think that young man is going to be a brilliant doctor. Wow, that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Professor Henning, I'm going to ask you to stay on the line. I, I, I just, I, I, I was enjoying just, you know, your take on it and, and giving us that insight uh, in terms of what it takes to, to do that kind of learning. I'm going to take Anne Musa with the headlines. We'll continue uh, with Professor Henning shortly. Kathy Mosasana on SAFM. We continue the conversation on the talking point. We're talking to uh, Professor Elizabeth Henning. She is with the uh, Primary School Faculty of Education at the University of Johannesburg. Professor Henning, perhaps your overall um, reflections on this year's matrix, uh, and I suppose not just the pass rate, but what, where the state of the education system is based on what these numbers tell us. Uh, I'm very hesitant 
to to judge the state of, it, of our country according to the numbers of the matric results, because that is an outcome, as I mentioned earlier, of 12 years of education. And um, it doesn't look too good. It didn't drop too much. And so I can re- I can repeat all these cliches that we've been hearing for the last few hours. Um, and w- what I'm more interested in is not the large statistics that measure us uh, compared to ourselves or in international tests to other countries, but more where are the spots where certain things are strong and others are weak? Can we zoom into those and to schools that struggle and that need more assistance? And I'm, I'm talking about assistance. I'm not talking about educational resources in material things. I'm talking about people. Where do we need more people attendance? Um, I don't know high schools that well, but in primary schools, for sure, this movement towards having coaches for teachers uh, in the in the primary school, specifically, I would say, in the early years, in the foundation phase, that's the answer because our teachers are our most precious possession after the kids themselves. And so whatever we can do for and with teachers, but what what I mean is really contact. Um, I've said it in another interview this morning that, you know, to get a letter from the local department or the district office or the circuit office or from the MEC in the province and to give you indications of what works and what doesn't work, that is just reading material. But what I think teachers need is people. They need the type of support, not Mm -hmm. just as a classroom assistant that helps you to clean up or to score the the tests in the books, but somebody who can support you uh, in a way, I guess, like a life coach. And I think we have the human material to do that. There are many retired teachers, I think, who can do that. And I would also call on all universities and their undergrad and postgrad students and their staff in the education faculties to set aside just a little bit of time for the teachers in our area mm-hmm. to go to them, to their classes, talk to them, not just inspire them, but talk about uh, what the current trends are in the science of learning, because many of our teachers have not had an opportunity to be, to be enculturated into what is there out in the behavioral and the neuroscience about how children learn. What should I do? How can I learn a little bit from this to improve the way I teach reading or the way I teach early numeracy or the way I teach science concepts and so forth? Professor Henning, you are talking about cliches. And one of the things that we often hear is um, at the release of the results is that the system is, is stabilizing. I'm not always sure what that means, but perhaps you can help me understand it a bit better. (laughs) I think you're asking the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) I really think you're asking the wrong person because Mm. as soon as the word system is in in a phrase, I think, okay, how much do we know about this system? What are the parameters of this system? Mm. How much does one family house in some parts of the country form part of the system. So repeat that fancy word, please, (laughs) ma'am. The system is stabilizing. 
stabilizing. Hmm. Okay, how does one measure stability? You know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a term that we borrow as a metaphor from physics, of course. Mm. So stability, we're not stationary, but we're stable. We're not rocking around so much anymore. Maybe a component of this acquisition of stability comes from the fact that we had to rely so much on other things but the very system. Like the young man in the interview, mm. um, like the many teachers who had to just scramble along and find ways to, to get the kids to school, uh, to get the parents to school to come and collect some information. Everybody had to be full of imagination and creativity. Maybe that is what brought the stability and not the strict rules and the strict functional bureaucracy, but the fact that we had to think in a new way. And maybe that's what the so-called 21st century skills actually mean that we have to integrate and collaborate and be creative and so that we can be innovative. So the pandemic is a terrible time in our life. Mm, mm. I often think, had I only, had I only skipped this by passing earlier, but, <laughs> but the point is what we have learned as a human species all over the world is that we have to work out different ways to survive, to provide and to flourish. And I think these young people in our country, especially especially the ones who had it hardest, mm. are probably the ones who are going to go further. I, I, I want to mention, a, it's not a pure statistic, it's from long, long ago at the old RAU, the predecessor of UJ. In, in, one of the, in two years in succession, I think, the biggest dropouts from first-year courses were the 6A matriculants, the ones who had 6As. So, so there's something about uh, performing in school at, at a, a grade 12 exit level, mm. which is important, but it's not the only thing that's important. Mm. And why I think that young man is going to be a great doctor is because he's learned the tricks of the trade. He's learned to imagine. He's learned to rely on himself. He's learned to theorize. Yeah? Professor Henning, let me leave it here with you and ask you, what do you think are the questions we need to be asking about the education system that can perhaps be more revealing of what the state of affairs is? I would ask, you know, Nick uh, Spall, who's quite famous in the country, he once did a Q&A with a couple of people on his blog. And uh, he said, if you landed next to the Minister of National Minister of Education on a flight from Cape Town, what would you ask her? You know, that sort of thing. And I think of that interview and I say, I would ask of her, Miss Andy, would you please use some of the money spent on, and I will make a list, and invest it in coaches, for teachers, I will ask, ma'am, what are you guys doing, you people doing for the grade ones, twos, and threes, and fours, and their teachers? And of course, their families. How many schools run something for parents? And I know many parents find it impossible to go to a school on a Saturday because Saturdays are taken up with so many other things, and sadly also so many funerals. But 
what do we do? Uh, do we ever have a teacher going to 10 homes, proximity-wise, 10 homes that are close to each other, to just pop in at the parents? In a, in a project in five schools with our Department of Social Development and Professor Leila Patel and Professor Jace Pillay, um, and with social workers, I could see what information do you get when you get to a child's home. I think it's quite important. I was a young teacher in Johannesburg and uh, at a reasonably middle-class school, and I had, it was part of my job to visit kids, and some of these kids were living in uh, Pageview, which was known as Frededorp in those days. Really, really poor people with so many people living there in 14th Street or 13th Street. And I can remember how that one child, Joanna, how she progressed because her mother saw her teacher and her teacher came to the house. I, so th those are a little bit, um, I mean, it sounds a bit esoteric and as if I'm in a fantasy world, but it's not. A visit here and there from a teacher to a school makes a world of difference. And I think our teachers would be willing to do that. But they are also clogged down with so much administration and filling in of forms and mm. writing reports. Um, long ago already, 10 years ago, we were already doing research and found that teachers were complaining because they, they, were more, they were more involved with writing what they were doing than doing it. All right. Professor, mm -hmm. okay. yeah. Professor Elizabeth Henning, let's leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for you. your time and for your insights. Uh, she Thank is you. with the University of Johannesburg. So uh, very interesting insights there from Professor Henning. And yeah, I, I, we hear this every year from the education department. The system is stabilizing. The system is stabilizing. And I heard, when I heard it last night, I, I, I thought to myself, well, what does it mean that the system is stabilizing? Because, of course, we've had all of these changes in terms of what the results are where the outcomes, the actual outcomes of uh, the metric results is. And so if there have been these fluctuations um, when we talk about the system stabilizing, what are we referencing? What are we really saying? Are we saying that we know if you put an X amount of learners in school, you'll get at least an X amount to matric and at least an X amount will be able to pass? I don't know. It's a complex question. And hopefully one that we'll be able to take up with uh, the Department of Education as well. Still got time uh, to take your calls this morning on this and other matters that you may want to raise. Uh, the number to dial this morning, we're back to our line, 011-714-2006. That's the number to use uh, to get in touch with us on the WhatsApp line, 614 Rampicha, you're calling us from uh, Khubukwani. Good morning. 